Some people seem to move almost effortlessly from planning into action, but appearances can be deceiving. It all comes down to having a process that works for you. I'm your host, M. David Green. Hack the Process is a show about looking at the systems and processes that we build our lives around to support mindful, meaningful progress. This show explores ways that people get past that pivot point, from having a fantasy to putting something real out there into the world. If you're ready to stop planning and fantasizing and start taking action, let's hack the process together. Instant coffee has a bad reputation, and you may think it's well-earned. But that means that there's room for disruption, and Josh Sleuth's company, Sudden Coffee, has patented a process for capturing all the flavor of the world's best coffee and packaging it in a convenient test tube. In this episode of Hack the Process, Josh will tell us what drew him away from a stable career to lead a startup, how he pivoted from selling consumer subscription plans to partnering with artisanal coffee roasters, and what he's learned from avoiding traditional business books in favor of reading fiction. Today, I'm speaking with Josh Sloof, and he's the co-founder and CEO of Sudden Coffee. Josh, how are you doing today? Doing great. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. I'm interested in talking with you about this. As you may know, I'm not a coffee drinker, but your company specializes in a special approach to coffee. And I am intrigued by the way that you've decided to do this. Yeah. So we basically invented the world's first specialty instant coffee. So we take really, really great coffees, coffees that might have you know, naturally fruity tastes or really nutty tastes or you know, light roasted coffees, and we created a new way to brew them and turn it into powdered instant coffee. So all you need to do is mix it with water and you have a great cup of coffee. I think people have usually had an association with the concept of instant coffee as being less quality rather than more quality. Exactly. Yeah. And so, you know, one of the things that we figured out, and this was the genesis of the company, is that there isn't actually a scientific reason behind that. It's more just the way it's been brewed and the way that it's been dehydrated in the past. And so as long as you pull together the right parts, you can actually make something, something that's really tasty. And the way you were talking about it, fruity notes, et cetera, it sounds like you were talking about chocolate is the best association that I come up with. Yeah. So there's been this movement in coffee to treat coffee a lot more like wine or chocolate, where, you know, you're getting coffee from specific farms, you know, the, you know, the backstory about how it was made, you know, who the farmer is. A lot of the coffees we choose are selected for really ethical farming practices and things like that. And so it's, it's a lot like what you would see in buying fine wine, really. Did you get into this because you were a, uh, an aficionado of fine foods and fine coffees? I kind of got into it a little bit in a roundabout way. I started out, you know, my passion early on was around manufacturing and, and kind of how you could use technology to make manufacturing and processes more efficient. And then as I was working at a prior company, this is a subsidiary of Groupon, I started making apps for, for high-end restaurants. And that was my first exposure to really great food and, you know, food and drink. And I lived next to this great cafe in San Francisco, and I didn't like how these things were inexpensive accessible to the majority of people in the US and in the world. Either it's too expensive, either they don't live near one, they don't live in a big city. And so I just got really into this idea of, you know, how do I use my skill set around manufacturing and technology to make these craft foods that I enjoy really accessible for people? And so that kind of led to this long journey and, you know, it took me a year and a half of trying startup ideas to arrive at working on, on this concept. But yeah, that's sort of the, the underlying reason I got into it. 
<laughs> I have to say that sounds like a very San Francisco story where you're trying to share that special thing that you have with the rest of the world. Yeah, you know, I, I think that for me, there's there's a really big human component. It's not just about trying to build the biggest company as fast as you can. I think that food, is, you know, when you're putting something in your body, it was for me just a way to connect with people. And so I really just wanted to make that something that more people could enjoy, if that makes sense. So you say that it was kind of a roundabout journey to this. So I'm, I'm guessing this was not your first startup. I would say this is my first startup that lasted more than three months. But yeah, I, I actually, I tried doing a startup with a few friends back in 2011, basically spent six months working on a couple different ideas and then, you know, went back to get a job to get, gain some more skills and then tried it again around 2014. And that's when I started working on all these ideas. And so during that process, I basically went through probably like 10 different ideas over the course of a year and a half, just going through, you know, startup idea after startup idea until one finally hit. So I consider this my first moderately successful startup. I'll put it that way. Okay, well, moderately successful. I believe you've recently gotten funding, right? Yeah, so we've so far raised three different rounds of funding, and we're actually in the process of raising another one. Over the last year, we really stumbled upon or cracked the model for how to make this new instant coffee category really take off. And so since then, it's really been growing really fast. And so, yeah, now we've transitioned from being, you know, figuring out the product market fit phase to now it's really taking off in a good way, which has been awesome. Well, that's exciting. And you know, clearly people believe in what you're doing enough to invest in it. And they, they see the growth potential behind it as well. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think a lot of what's happening in coffee now is that there are these really great brands that are, they're doing a lot to change the conversation around coffee. They're doing a lot to change the supply chain, but it's hard to make them scalable because, you know, I don't think anybody wants to go build thousands of cafes like Starbucks used to. And so what we've been able to do is we we provide a way for these coffee companies that are small businesses, basically, to be able to extend their reach and, and reach new customers and have new people get to experience what they're about. I think just from that aspect, you know, it really matches where, where the coffee industry has been going, which has been cool. That's an interesting distinction there, because when I think of companies in the coffee industry, I think of companies that are specializing in their own particular roast or their own particular blend. And that's the thing that distinguishes them in the marketplace. But for you, it sounds like you're partnering with a lot of companies and almost featuring their blends and their roasts as the thing that you're, you're providing the delivery mechanism for. Exactly. Yeah. We realized that customers want their coffee, their local coffee roaster. Everyone has, you know, the coffee in their in their area. They have a connection to that coffee company. And our sweet spot, you know, we're really good at brewing and we're really good at the dehydration step. And that's really what makes us special. And so you know, we said, hey, why don't we we just work with these other coffee companies? They're some of the best companies in the world at doing this. And we don't need to reinvent the wheel on roasting and sourcing and all of that stuff that people have really figured out in a really great way. And so now we basically partner with a whole bunch of coffee companies. We're up to 20 now. Some of the ones in the Bay Area are like Ritual Coffee, Equator Coffee. We work with Intelligentsia Coffee. They're they're a more national brand. And so we basically will partner with them. And, you know, their brand is really the focus. Their supply chain is the focus. Their case profile is the focus. And we're really the platform similar to, I think, a more modern version of a K-Cup. Modern, more sustainable, easier to use. That's how we like to think about it. What's intriguing to me about this is that you're kind of dancing the line between being a business to consumer company and a business to business company. And you're kind of doing both at the same time. 
yeah, we just kind of made the switch. And so the buzzword is B to B to C that I've been told I should be using more. <laughs> but yeah, that's kind of the that's kind of the idea where, you know, we, we try to go for like the Intel inside approach. So, you know, we have really unique packaging. We have our coffee comes in a test tube. And, you know, our goal is that no matter what the label is, if you see coffee in a test tube, you know, it's going to taste good. And that's something that we made. And so we can share that, you know, with many different coffee companies. And, and that's kind of the approach we've taken. Yeah, I know your packaging is, is very distinctive. Is that something that you've, you've trademarked at this point? Or is it something that you're building up a brand awareness around? So we have patented putting coffee into our packaging. And so we initially just found test tubes that we could find off the shelf. But yeah, you know, I think it's something that we've really designed our manufacturing process around. And, you know, the goal is that it's just, it becomes something that you kind of just associate, you know, subconsciously, like you just see that packaging and you kind of know what it's going to be about. The patent process itself is very complicated and sometimes takes a very long time to work through. The company's only a couple of years old, right? We're three and a half years old since we started, yeah, basically working on Seven specifically. So it must have come together fairly quickly then if you've got a filed patent on this. It took a couple of years before we, we kind of figured out exactly like, you know, this is the form factor we want to use and this is how we're going to package it and, and all that stuff. But yeah, we eventually decided, hey, you know, this is something that we really want to own and have be part of our brand. And that led us to, to going that route. No, it, it sounds like it's really sensible and especially partnering with other companies who then I suppose they become the distributors for the packaging that you provide. Yeah, exactly. So they help market the product, they help sell it. But really, you know, the thing that excites me the most is is around customer education. We're doing a lot before when we started, we were a subscription website. And there's a lot that goes into making videos and teaching people and blog posts that go into just teaching you about this new category. Our process, because of the quality and because of how we brew coffee, it is more expensive it's going to definitely be more than Folgers, no matter what, even at the cheapest possible level. And so we had to explain that to people. And we were spending a whole lot of money that, you know, is not going into making the coffee better, but was instead going into paying photographers and paying, you know, videographers and all this stuff. And so part of what we can do now is we just focus on making something that tastes really good. And the roasters, you know, when you go to a cafe, you talk to the barista, they can now share this with you and they're excited about it. And they'll tell you, you know, hey, this isn't the bad instant coffee you thought it was. Through that process, we're getting it out to more people and getting more people to care about it, which I think is, has been really valuable and really, really awesome to see. Yeah, investing in that education when you're creating basically a new, a new product for the marketplace they haven't seen before, because this is a new category of instant coffee. I can see where that would be challenging. And I'm curious how that informed your company's social media strategy. We tried a lot, you know, when we first started doing it, we didn't really know what we were doing with social media. And then I think over time, once we realized that we have this problem around customer education, we started, I think a couple things are being a lot more authentic and just typing things out. So, you know, we had a Facebook ad that was many paragraphs that was literally me kind of just typing stream of conscious, just saying, hey, you know, we created this really great instant coffee. Here's why. Here's why it's different. Let me explain it to you. And, you know, if you clicked into it, it would give you all of the details. With social media, a lot of times, you know, you think that, hey, it just has to be an ad. It has to be two sentences. But, you know, similarly, we wrote a blog post that was 10 pages long about our process and what goes into it, et cetera. And so when you're trying to work on education and, and teaching people, 
if you have something interesting, people will read it. And as long as you're being yourself, people will read it. And so I think that taught me a lot that really shifted how we think about social media. I think about the coffee culture in San Francisco in particular, and I would think that a 10-page blog post would actually be spot-on targeted for the people in San Francisco who love their coffee. The cool thing was we actually got a lot of customers who are, you know, like the suburbs of Nashville. Like a big part of my goal was I wanted to get it out of San Francisco, you know, because in San Francisco, we're spoiled. There's so many great options. But, you know, how do you access people who don't have, you know, access to great coffee? And initially, I think the big question was, oh, well, hey, like you guys are just making hipster coffee and that's only a San Francisco thing. But no, no, we were seeing that people out all over the U.S. were really interested in how we do what we do. They're interested in coffee. And once we started making that content, people were, were just really curious. And so that was really surprising. It was cool to see that shift. I think that there's a good reason why there would be a lot of interest in something like this, because it's a luxury product, but it's an affordable luxury. And right now with the economy in the state that it's in, a lot of people are looking for those affordable luxuries. Yeah. Exactly. That's exactly why I got passionate about food or about this space is that, you know, not everyone can afford a Tesla, right? Or, you know, we can't all afford to go to Thailand on an amazing vacation. But once in a while, you know, you can spend a few bucks extra on your coffee. And it's something that everyone can try. Everyone can be part of. It's not exclusive. You know, that that's what got me excited about food specifically, and then coffee even more so because it's something everyone has every day. And it's something that anyone can experience. And so I think that's what's really exciting personally about this for me. I can see that. And, you know, of course, you've got your packaging that's so Instagrammable. Have you started getting people showing their their test tubes on Instagram? Yeah. So, you know, that was that was another factor in selecting this form factor is that, yeah, you know, we we knew that we were building a brand that had to work online as well. And so we definitely, from the beginning, would always get, you know, tags on Instagram with people who'd seen the product and wanted to share it. And what's been really exciting is is now that we've switched to this model with roasters, we're just seeing all the different packages, all the different labels, people all over the country, all over the world. There's someone who posted from South Korea, just excited about these different coffees. And so just the diversity of what we've been able to do has been really exciting for me. And I imagine the form factor also makes it much more portable around the world because you know, properly brewed coffee, I, it's got like aromatics, it's got very volatile chemicals in it. It's very difficult to, to preserve that. But this form, I believe, helps preserve those. Exactly. So a lot of people are using roasted beans and roasted beans only last for two weeks. You know, sometimes you can make it last a lot longer. You know, when you see beans that are six months old, they might say that on the label, but you've actually lost a lot of the really fragile compounds, especially if you're trying to brew a top coffee. What's great about about instant coffee is that you basically preserve all that and you crystallize it. And it is literally crystallized coffee and that locks in the aromatics. And the other really cool thing is it weighs one fifth of what roasted beans weigh. And so if you're shipping coffee internationally, guess what? The carbon footprint is a lot lower. You're making it all centrally in one place. So you're a lot more efficient about your heat and your water and all these things. And so there's a lot of these environmental benefits or sustainability benefits that come with using this form factor. You know, we're still at the beginning. I think there's a long way to go. But just as a concept, bringing instant coffee back can do a lot to make coffee more sustainable. 
from an efficiency perspective, I can see why you'd be attracted to this business. Yeah, well, that too. We've built a factory in San Francisco. It's been super fun, you know, just intellectually for me to get into that as well. It's rare to think about people building new factories in the United States these days. So that's exciting to hear too. Yeah, it's especially with all you hear in the news lately and everything like that, you know, we get to probably say, you know, we actually are like, we're making a real factory, you know, it's in San Francisco. And so that's been a really, really fun challenge. And I don't know, hopefully good, good, good for the community. There aren't a lot of manufacturing jobs here. It's, you know, it's not a very big space. And so I'm excited about getting to create that. From a business perspective, are there any tax advantages to building a manufacturing business? Not a lot of people go into that these days. So I'm curious. Not that I know of so far. We're definitely still in startup mode. So part of that is we're not quite profitable. And so we don't pay any taxes just because of that. But, you know, once we start, you know, knock on wood, turning a profit over the next couple of years, then it's something that I definitely want to look into. As far as I know, though, despite all, all the talk, I don't think there are very large tax incentives for um, building in the U.S., that is interesting. That is interesting. So the stage that you're at right now, you're, you're getting investors, you're not profitable, but you definitely see an upside to this. And you've recently changed the business model from more toward working with other companies. I'm curious how that came about. You know, I'd, I'd like to say that it was part of a, a grand master plan. Every three months, we've been really good at kind of reassessing our strategy and reassessing where we're at. And about a year and a half ago, we had a few things happening. We, we started to really see and resonate with this customer education problem. Like we realized that that was holding us back. And we also started getting inbound attention from roasters, other coffee companies who said, you know, the first one being Equator Coffee in the Bay Area, who said, hey, we want our own instant coffee. Can you make it for us? And the third thing that made this work is we we finally had locked down our production process to a, an extent where we could do this in small enough batches for small business, high enough quality, low enough cost. And so with all three of those things, the customer education, the demand from the roasters and making it cheap enough, we said, hey, let's try this. And so we started piloting with Equator Coffee and then Intelligentsia Coffee and then, you know, six months after that, added on three more roasters. And then we started to say, see, hey, you know, this is really picking up steam. And with every new roaster that we would, we would launch with, we'd get a couple more who wanted to join. Everyone was reordering. And compared to our old business model, you know, we, we were selling on a subscription business. And, you know, like, I think a lot of the times you get caught up in the math of, well, I have this ad and the ad work, you know, here's my, you know, revenue from the ad, etc. But we're getting all these angry comments for people who didn't want to subscribe. And while we could make the math work, it wasn't joyful for people. Whereas this thing with roasters was joyful, you know, they wanted it, there was excitement. And so once we started to see that uh, set of ingredients, it kind of just like pulled us towards that, that new space. And that sort of led to, to everything falling into place after that. It's nice to hear a startup CEO talking about being directed by joy rather than by suffering. It's so easy to just get caught in the math all the time, especially I have like an engineering background, you know, I, I like that stuff. And so it's really easy for me to, to just look at what the numbers say. It's one of those things that I think once you go through it, you can kind of intuit it the next time around. But before I experienced it, it was really hard to have a feeling for it. Yeah. And once you get it, it's very difficult to let go of. I could, I could see where that would be attractive and it would be a good indicator that that's the direction you want to move in. 
Yeah, you know, and I think there's these tough decisions. So, you know, the business we're in now is it's lower margin, for example, because, you know, we're selling to a roaster and then they have to market up and then they sell it into Whole Foods and they market up versus our website. Uh, you know, we still get critiques from folks who say, hey, well, you know, aren't you giving up all this extra margin or you're leaving a lot on the table or, you know, things like that. But when the market is pulling you towards something, you know, you, I, I think you kind of just have to listen to it. Like, it's so rare to have something that where customers are coming to you. And so, you know, my belief is that if, if you have something like that, it'll work. You will figure out a path. And so that's that's kind of been the approach we've been taking. And since kind of just leaning into that, it's every quarter we, we've been doubling our sales. And that's been really great to, to see. So how large is the company today? So right now we are 12 people. Most of our team is in operations or actually like making coffee or, you know, doing stuff on our production line. Yeah. So we're, we're still really tiny, all things considered. I think if you look at, you know, a coffee company that has one or two cafes, they're probably like 20 people. So for what we're producing, we're pr a pretty lean team. Yeah. And you're making a very big impact for such a small team too. Yeah. I'm always looking for at the next hill, but I think we've been able to create something that the industry hasn't seen before. And so I think it's been cool. It's been a great journey thus far. Taking you back to when, when the company started, it was just you and one co-founder, right? Yep, exactly. How did that scale from that point to the point where you started needing to bring on employees? People are always interested in like seeing how people got over that hurdle to needing to bring in paid people. So before I met my co-founder, and I think there's part of the startup journey that I don't think gets talked about a lot, but there's this phase, and I think a lot of entrepreneurs go through this, where you're working by yourself. Like you don't even have a co-founder yet. And, you know, you start out by, you know, working in your bedroom, you know, you're in your sweatpants half the time, trying to find an idea and a co-founder and a space and all of these things. And, you know, that alone, as I said earlier, took about a year and a half of like, you know, swirling around that. And then eventually met my co-founder. And I think the thing that really united us was we, we really both resonated on this value of wanting to share these experiences with more people, like make people happy through food, through coffee. And we basically spent the first four months with just the two of us focused on how do we make as much of this as we can and how do we market it? I recommend trying to stay until you really have something that's like really taking off to not have employees is probably the best thing. Like, you know, it allows you to keep moving and ideating and uh, there's a lot less you have to manage. But the, the thing that, you know, flipped for us is we started our very first process was we would take espresso shots that we had to hand make one at a time and put them into a freeze dryer. And that's how we, we made the coffee. And so the first couple of people we brought on were part-time folks who would come in for four hours and literally pull espresso shots as you would in a cafe for four hours at a time. And so that was the first, you know, the first set of folks we brought on were, were basically part-time baristas. And eventually we had three or four people. And the main reason for that was my co-founder was originally the one pulling the espresso shots. And then it got to the point with orders where we were, he was having to do that every day. And so couldn't focus on anything else. And so one of our advisors at the time said, Hey, you know, what would it take for, for you to not be able to not have to be you know, work pulling espresso shots? And also how much would you have to charge? And, you know, we realized we would have to charge $6 to support the cost of doing this by hand. 
you know, it's tough, but we raised the price to $6 and we were doing it by hand. And that allowed us more freedom to start working on, you know, customer research or figuring out how to do marketing or figuring out how to scale the process or improve it. The second hire we got, which was an interesting one, was we brought on a packaging intern because packaging in our space is really important. I got a recommendation to reach out to a professor who's a packaging expert and ask if they had anyone who was looking for a summer job, especially around the, you know, the spring. It's great to do that. And so for those who out there who are needing to hire folks, you know, that ended up being, I think, one of the most talented people that we've had in the history of the company. His name is Morgan Blades. He was joined us as an intern in packaging. And it was through, you know, one of those random connections like that. That's wonderful. And that's going to be a great portfolio piece for him as well. Yeah, yeah. He's now on to really great things. He's, he ended up working at Google and packaging. And, and so I'm super jazzed for him. It's true. What you say, one of the things you mentioned was that at this point, you had a co-founder and you already had advisors. I'm curious about how you built that advisor relationship, because sometimes the most important thing about starting a business is where you get your advice from and how you build that up. To answer your question, really great question on how we kind of brought folks together to, to help through this process. The first set of advisors we got were actually, you know, one of them was my old boss, and he's the one who connected me to my co-founder and also had another former boss who ended up being an advisor. And then a couple of our other early ones. So my, my co-founder, he went to a lot of coffee conferences. And so just through some of these events, he would just be talking to someone who happened to be a scientist, a coffee scientist. And just through sharing what the idea was, you know, you kind of get people who are interested and then conversations happen. And then, you know, at some point you say, hey, you know, can you can either formally make someone an advisor or sometimes they become an investor or sometimes they're an informal advisor, just someone who wants to help or hear about the idea. I think the path or the recommendation I give people is, if you can figure out ways to broadcast what you're doing, whether it's writing about it on a blog post or on Facebook, or just share with as many people as possible, you know, what you're doing, what's it, what's exciting about that, you'll kind of attract people who are interested in helping and, and wanting to talk about it. And, and so I think that's something I've seen come up again and again in the company's history is whenever we've really gotten to that broadcast mindset, cool things have happened. And so I've seen that be a good way to bring the right people to the table, if that makes sense. No, I could see that. And you meant, so you've mentioned blogging was one of the ways that you, you broadcast this. And then I guess going to events and just networking is another way. Yeah. You know, I, I don't consider myself very good at networking. I hate going to networking events myself, but I think when I view it as, you know, I'm going to something to just learn something to learn something or, you know, just meet people. And then you just kind of start talking about what you're doing. So when, you know, that inevitably comes up and it naturally will happen. In other words, it doesn't have to be a proactive process. Rather, if you are going to events that seem interesting to you and you just share then it kind of, can kind of happen naturally. I can see that. And I think a lot of people also need to get over the hurdle of being embarrassed just to share what they're doing and feeling like they need to protect it before it's ready to share. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think for good reason, you know, so I do not believe in the idea of hiding what you're working on. I think that does not work. But I think in the early stages, when you don't really have the business yet, when you start sharing it, emotionally, you start having ownership of that concept. And especially, you know, with your friends and family, you know, then every time you catch up with someone, they'll ask you about the thing that you're working on. And then if it doesn't work, 
or if you moot switch ideas or whatever, you have to face that. And it's very uncomfortable. You know, I don't know how else to put it. It's especially there was a period where every three months I was switching ideas and I always had to go and, you know, retract or say, oh, I switched this or I'm not working on this or that didn't work out. And so it is a brave thing for anyone. Like whenever I see someone just talking about what they're working on, even if it hasn't started yet or it's at the beginning stages, it's something to, to just push through. And I think that's a valuable it's a valuable skill to kind of just get comfortable with that. So what was it that attracted you to entrepreneurship to begin with? Is it sounds like you were you were headed down the path to working in good companies and having an entrepreneurial career rather than an entrepreneurial career. Totally. Well, I'm crazy for one. <laughs> um, I think I had a lot of good influences. So, you know, I, I grew up in the Bay Area. My dad did a couple startups growing up. And so I kind of was around that. I had even I lived in Boston for a few years after college and my roommate was running a startup out of our apartment. And so I think it always to me seemed like an inevitability that I would try to start something. And especially in the Bay Area, you know, a lot of the companies that you work at, there's sort of a rotation of people who, you know, you work at a startup, your startup gets acquired, you go to work at a big company then you leave, you start another startup, it gets acquired. I think there's a pattern of companies almost using startups as their research and development today versus, you know, 30 years ago, they'd have a big R&D department. And so there's sort of this natural flow. I think, you know, one aspect was just being around it. And, you know, I think the other aspect was I was a management consultant as my first job. And I, you know, probably looking back overly confidently thought, you know, well, all these companies have problems, I could build a better one. Or, you know, let me take a swing at doing this myself. Or I at least wanted to see, I just wanted to know what it took or what it was like. Or if I'm advising these clients on some really tough decisions, well, let me be in a position to have walked in their shoes. And so I think there was also this search for understanding or wanting to just, you know, see how these things are made. And that kind of led me to it. But I definitely don't consider myself a, quote, startup guy by default. It's really a part of my journey. I would be perfectly happy also working at a big company if it was under the right, you know, for someone I respected or on a team, as long as I'm working on something I'm excited about. And so there's sometimes this rigidity around, are you a big company person or, oh, that's a startup, person, a startup guy or gal. And, you know, I think it's just, you know, it's life. It's what you do for work. It's, it's just something you're choosing to do. <laughs> yeah, I can definitely see that. Part of the challenge of starting companies, though, is figuring out what that business model is going to look like and how you run a company. I'm curious if there were experts or people you read, people you followed who helped you learn some of the things you needed to know as you were getting started. I think, you know, at my last company job, which which was at Groupon, as I mentioned, I had four or five bosses during my tenure there, and all of them had founded startups. And so I think from that, you know, I think I got through osmosis, just some learnings of how to kind of go about things. But early on, I think I was just reading various different blog posts. My first job in tech was as a product manager. And so through that, you kind of get this idea of, okay, you know, this is how I do customer research, and this is how I create products. And so then it's not a super far leap to say, okay, cool, well, I have this idea. And let me try to go make it or let me try and go do something with it. I think the book that probably gave me like the closest to a process was The Lean Startup. 
where you know kind of gets you thinking about how to approach these problems in you know short sprints and in ways that are manageable without having to hire an engineering team without having to build a bunch of stuff and so then going through that path and reading more blogs that were associated with that and you know this is now you know 4 or 5 years ago but that sort of gave me the freedom to start trying stuff and then i think a lot of it was just through trial and error to be honest I don't like, at least now, I don't read business books. I like reading a lot of fiction, but you kind of just create the right frameworks for these things and, you know, just proceed as as needed. What kind of fiction do you gravitate toward and who do you like? Recently, in the last year, got really into fantasy. So Brandon Sanderson, Mistborn series has been my favorite thus far. I've gotten a lot of value out of, number one, just getting outside of my head, outside of the day-to-day. And then also, you know, you get these like fictional portrayals of things like leadership or et cetera that for me are, it ends, end up being really motivating or just really interesting or kind of fun. Yeah, I don't know. Kind of like that stuff. That's really great because I think a lot of people ignore the, how much benefit you can get in terms of learning and inspiration and even your virtual mentors through reading fiction and finding heroes. Totally. Yeah, exactly. And it was something that I just never, you know, explored. And then, you know, meanwhile, I think all of these, like you read these business books, like getting to yes, or influence or whatever, and difficult conversations, they're all like really great books, but they're repetitive. And, you know, I, I have a lot of people I talk to who are like, I only read nonfiction. I want a book that will make my life better. And it's like, okay, like we've heard, you know, at this point, I'm like, we've heard it all before, you know, yeah, influencing people, we got it, let's move on. It can get a little bit repetitive, I can see that, but everybody brings a unique twist to it. And there may come a time when the experience that you've brought to the table, you're going to have people out there who want to learn from you. Yeah, and I need to do better about documenting that as a matter of fact, but definitely, I always like to try to give advice or say things that are not the norm as much as possible. Uh, that's at least my spin on it. Yeah, no, I wanted to find out a little bit more about how you're running the company these days, how you organize, what your processes are in terms of running a company and how they've changed over time. Yeah, really great question. You know, today in the steady state, we do a daily huddle, you know, for 15 minutes, really similar to what you do on an engineering team, you know, where everyone just does their last 24, what they did in the last 24 hours and what they did in the next 24 hours. I'm a really big believer in I do a team meeting every Friday. I got this from my consulting days. I really value Friday as sort of like a team day where everyone can kind of be in the office. So I'll never book, you know, external meetings or things like that on a Friday. And it's really about me connecting with people. And a big part of that practice that I've really gravitated towards is doing a gratitude. So everyone goes around the room and says something they're grateful for that happened in the last week, just to to bring some positivity to it, especially when you have a rough week. And then I've been using this tool 15.5, which I love, and I cannot sing its praises enough. It's a really great management tool. You can use it for one-on-ones. You can use it for your quarterly goals. You can use it for you know team meetings. And it sort of tracks everyone's progress and performance. And it has a good barometer where everyone fills out, you know, how am I feeling that week? And, you know, you can kind of get a sense for what everyone's working on. So I like to have a practice where everyone fills it out and then, you know, reads everyone else's. So we we all kind of know what we're working on. I think the big things are we kind of have the team divided up into we have a product org and operations org and partnership sales and operations are biggest area. But I'm a really big believer, you know, with a startup, you it's really critical to have invest time once a quarter in your strategy. 
and what happened and how did we do against the, the last quarter and what are we doing going forward? And then I try to give folks as much ownership as possible in terms of creating their goals and you know building stuff out. And so that's really the current state. And you know, depending on as different areas have expanded, so you know, coming up for us in the next six months, we're probably going to need to build a bigger factory, and so that means you know, hiring more people in ops. And so, in my mind, I kind of just chunk things up as like different parts of the problem, and you can always kind of double click into it and go a layer deeper. And so that's kind of how we divide up the work, if that makes sense. No, that does make sense. And I think that particularly when you're in a startup and you've got employees who they're taking a risk because they're working for a much smaller company, that level of transparency about what's going on, I think is very important. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's honestly hard. You know, you have to make a practice to do it because it's really easy to just get siloed and just focus on your email. And so even though I think sometimes folks feel like it's a waste of time, but there's this just learning through osmosis that you get through it. But yeah, it's been it's been really interesting to see how it's evolved from the early days, like the, when it was, you know, just two of us or three of us in a room trying to get stuff done. I think I tried to put in process. Or, so it, it's been really interesting to see that you join a larger company and you see all these things that are broken and are broken. And why don't we have our values printed out? Or why don't we have company values? Or where is this stuff going? And I've realized now that you need different solutions for different size teams and different parts of the company. And so early on, I tried to define our company values with my co-founder many, many times. And honestly, it was kind of a waste of time because we didn't know what we were building yet. And so we couldn't really have values for how we want to work and how we want to do things because we were unsure of who was on the team, what the team was going to be like, you know, are we going to be engineering focused? Are we going to be sales focused? Are we going to, you know, and so you know, you realizing that early on, you, you do not want this structure. And then later on, you do want more and more structure. I think that's been a really valuable learning, you know, whereas before, as an employee, I would have felt like, oh, my God, this company's screwing up, or the CEO screwing up. Now I have a little more patience or understanding about why decisions are made and what order and how it works out. It kind of speaks to the issue you were talking about before with changing direction every few months. A lot of companies feel like they need to reproduce the models of big established companies that have a clear direction, including all of those values on the wall and everything. Whereas when you're a startup and when you're at that stage, that flexibility, that that agility is probably the biggest advantage that you have. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, I remember the first time I would apply that big company lens and say, great, here's our six month plan. And then the first time, you know, within two weeks, you're like, okay, we need to drop that whole plan. Like, at first, I used to feel this deep tension, like I'm not sticking to my plan. And now you kind of let go of that. But people who now are new team members are like, Josh, like, we need more of a plan. Why is there not a plan? (laughs) And so um, it's, you know, it's an evolution. I think that's kind of the takeaway. That's true. And it's good that you've got a good answer for that. The uh, One of the challenges I know for a lot of CEOs is how do you manage to keep life balance for yourself? And I'm curious what your life balance looks like these days. So this is one of those areas where I give the contrary advice. You know, I take my weekends off. I like barely check my email on the weekends. I try to work, you know, usually like 10 to 6 or 10 to 7. 
And I have a routine in the morning where I get up, I read a book while I drink a coffee, non or a fiction book, and then I'll meditate for 15 minutes. And, you know, I make sure to still have dinner with my friends on Friday and actually do a gratitude dinner with my friends uh, every once in a while. It's the same thing as the work gratitudes, but more just socially oriented. And so, you know, I think that there's just oftentimes an ethos or a pull that says like, hey, for a startup CEO, you, you got to be working all the time. You have to like live, breathe and die your startup. And, you know, I am living it in here all the time. But if you don't do things for self-care, you know, that is the path to burnout. And I've gone through burnout probably three or four times. And it's always when that gets out of whack. And so it's really important to me and for other people on our team to, to be aware of that. It's something that's easy to lose track of. And I, I know the startup scene can burn people out really quickly. Can you tell us a little bit more about your mindfulness practice? Pretty basic one. I use Headspace. One of my really close friends, who's actually my roommate who was doing a startup out of our apartment, he got really into meditation and is the one who got me thinking about it. And then I downloaded the Headspace app. And so I just go through different meditations for 15 minutes. And I think it's for those who don't meditate, you know, it's a really good way to start to just be aware of thoughts that are going on in your mind and not cling to them. And so it's like you, you still have thoughts that give you anxiety or fear, but it doesn't control you as much. It help, You can have a way to get through them. And so I think that's been really great. I think to, it provides a needed way to pull back from the, from the hustle and bustle of the kind of work that you're doing. Exactly. So I know a lot of my listeners now are going to want to find out where they can taste your wonderful coffee, both yours and the coffee that people are roasting for you. So where can I send them to find out more? Yeah. So suddencoffee.com, you can order it on our website. It's available on Amazon sometimes when we're when we're not out of stock. And then we're now working with more and more roasters. So in the Bay Area, Ritual Coffee, Equator Coffee, Intelligentsia Coffee outside, Ruby's one roaster that went live recently, Ozone Colorado. And so you'll start to see it more. You can buy a Ritual branded coffee in Whole Foods. So it should be either in cafes or in grocery stores right next to roasted beans. So look out for it. It'll be in a box with four servings. That's great. So Josh, thank you so much for being on the show. I really appreciate it. Yeah, likewise. Thank you so much. Are you glad you listened to this episode of Hack the Process? Then take an action now. Make a note about something you just heard and how it's going to help you as you hack your own process. And let me know about it. This has been M. David Green, your host for Hack the Process. You can tweet me at Hack the Process, leave a review for the show on iTunes, and visit HackTheProcess.com to check out the show notes for this episode and join our community of process hackers. Thanks for listening. <laughs>